Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open up your copy of the Word of God to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22 this morning. This is Palm Sunday, and it marks the beginning of what we Christians call Holy Week. When the Lord Jesus would come into Jerusalem, and for an entire week, he would interact with the religious leaders and other individuals in the city, leading up to his arrest, his crucifixion on Friday, and then his resurrection on Sunday. Church history marks the season with red because of blood. The blood that Christ would shed and also the blood of the martyrs. And as we follow his lead throughout the Christian life. One of the occasions when Jesus prayed was in the Garden of Gethsemane. I would like to focus on that for a few minutes this morning before we take the Lord's Supper together. I want you to notice just two things this morning. Jesus' instructions to his disciples, which he offers to them in verses 39 through 40, and then again in verses 45 and 46, at the beginning and the end of this passage. Jesus' instructions to the disciples concerning prayer. And then secondly, right in the middle, the centerpiece of all of this, I want you to notice Jesus' prayer to the Father in verses 41 through 44. The Last Supper ended with several disappointing elements. Uh, Judas left Jesus to betray him. The disciples fell into infighting. Uh, Jesus prophesied failure for Peter as well as the other disciples as they would desert him. And his final words were misunderstood by the disciples because of their spiritual dullness. In dismay, Jesus said to them, that is enough, when he told his disciples that it was time to take up a sword. They thought he meant a literal one. This passage begins with explicit instructions to pray. And it ends with the Lord Jesus finding the eleven disciples now asleep again. And he charges them, get up and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. I want you to notice, first of all, the instructions to the disciples. They're really identical almost. He came and he proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. When he arrived, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then at the end of the chapter, he says the same thing again. However, he says, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You know, Jesus always had a strong prayer life and a corresponding strong emphasis on prayer and communion with the Father. He not only taught it, he practiced it. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Early in the morning, Jesus, while it was still dark, got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place 
and was praying there. In Matthew 14, 23, on a real high moment, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus said, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. In this book, Luke chapter 6, verse 12, Luke says, it was at this time when the leaders clearly planned to kill Jesus, to get rid of him. It was at this time that he went off to a mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. From the beginning to the end of his ministry, early in the morning or during a busy day, late at night, at a high point and at a low point, Jesus can be found in prayer. The Lord Jesus, whenever he prayed, was fortified with spiritual power and resources from the Father. I can't help but think of that quote by E.M. Bounds. He wrote a number of books on prayer, one in particular called Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. He says, quote, The church is on a stretch, if not on a strain, to look for better methods. But men are God's methods, and while the church is looking for better methods, God is looking for better men. The Holy Spirit does not anoint methods. He anoints men. And God is looking for better men. It's clear that prayer is the communion of the believer with his or her God. And we ought to follow Jesus' example. In these verses, Jesus emphasized a particular theme. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Well, why this particular theme? Probably because he is about to face his greatest temptation of all. The temptation to abort his mission and to avoid the cross. You see, the structure of Luke's account of Gethsemane is significant. All three of the synoptic gospels, that is to say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Both Matthew and Mark mention the name Gethsemane. And secondly, that Jesus turned or returned from prayer three times to find his disciples sleeping. But Luke's account is somewhat abridged and structured like a, a, a portrait. He uses the disciples' failures at the beginning and at the end as a frame for the centerpiece or the picture. And that, of course, is our Lord Jesus in prayer, agonizing prayer to the Father. I want us to look for a few moments at that second point now, Jesus' prayer to the Father in verses 41 and 42. The Bible mentions two movements here, basically. Number one, the content of his prayer, and that's in 41 and 42. And then secondly, the agony of his prayer, and that is in 43 and 44. First of all, the content. We have a humble petition. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now, first, we're reminded of the close, intimate fellowship with the Son, or the Son had always enjoyed with the Father from all of eternity. Remember, the Son, the Lord Jesus, is the second person of the Godhead. And the Trinity was present even before the created order. Let us make man in our image. And so the Son is co-equal and co-eternal and co-existent with the Father. Jesus knows or shows deference to the Father if you are willing. If you're willing. And the main point, remove this cup from me. 
So we see, for the first time, Jesus making uh, somewhat of a petition. In a negative sense, he doesn't want this cup. In his full human nature, he would, like anyone else would, recoil from the death he was going to die. What was the cup Jesus was referring to? Scripture tells us uniformly that this refers to the wrath of God. Psalm 11, verse 6, God's judgment is characterized as, quote, raining coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Isaiah 51, 17, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. In Ezekiel 23, verse 33, it's called the cup of horror and desolation. Now, these expressions and many more speak of God's wrath against his enemies and against sin. Nevertheless, these expressions of wrath were often followed by forgiveness and restoration. The Lord would extend his wrath because God is holy. But then he would show grace, forgiveness, and restoration time and time again to his wayward children, the Israelites. Now, in this particular situation, when Jesus talks about drinking the cup, what he's referring to is not a temporary, or we might say an exhaustive, or an example of the Old Testament when it was only a temporary type of wrath. No, in this situation, the cup of God's wrath is referring to the unfiltered, unhindered, exhaustive wrath of Almighty God against the sin of His elect children for all time. That's what Jesus is referring to. See, God is absolutely holy, and sacrifices too numerous to count were made for centuries as a means of temporary atonement for the sins of God's people. And these sacrifices had to be made year after year, over and over again, to appease the wrath of God. The Bible has a lot to say about His wrath and fury. And so atonement for sin must be made. And so we see Jesus here with a humble petition. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But then we see not only a humble petition, but a willing submission in the latter part of verse 42. With all the aforementioned in mind, Jesus finishes his prayer with a statement of willing, obedient submission. Yet, or nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus throughout his entire life had always practiced willing obedience and submission to the Father's will. And now would be no exception. This entire prayer demonstrates in living color Christ's humanity. He was 100% deity, that is God, but also 100% humanity. So he could identify with us in our struggles. And so Jesus requests that the cup pass from him if the Father is willing, if the Father's will can be accomplished some other way. Incidentally, this is a great pattern of prayer for all of us. Humble petition, willing submission. Lord, I would prefer things happen this way. I'd like something like this, but 
I don't want it outside of your will. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It really covers all the bases. Like always, Jesus does furnish a wonderful pattern for prayer. But there's something more going on in this passage, something of great importance. And I want you to notice that in the second part of Jesus' prayer, the agony of his prayer. Look at 43 and 44. You know, Jesus says, Father, let this cup pass. He was always dedicated to doing the will of the Father, always dedicated to fulfillment of Scripture. But here we see in his humanity, Jesus is saying, is there some other way? If there is, I appeal to you, my heavenly Father, to let me take that route. This critical moment, an angel appears to supplement Jesus' human strength and resources. It's a beautiful picture, once again, of Christ's humanity. You say, why would the eternal Son of God need an angel to come and strengthen him? Because he was the eternal Son of God. He was 100% human. And so these little elements in this passage help us to understand what he was going through. You get some indication of the intensity of his feelings when we read what the other Gospels don't state of Jesus' sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground. The word agony is found only here in the New Testament. So you have to think, why was Jesus in such agony? Why was Jesus so undone? You know, most of the time Jesus would pray standing up. But here he kneels. And again, it's a very, very strong picture of the eternal Son of God facing not just any ordinary death, Now, this was no ordinary death, as it would involve agony because of three reasons. Number one, it would involve the absence of communion with the Father. You remember Jesus said on the cross, those words from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As the sinless Son of God, Jesus always enjoyed rich and deep, and constant communion with the Father, as we've already seen. But now the Father on the cross would forsake the Son temporarily. He would turn His face away from the Son. Why? Well, the book of Habakkuk gives us a clue. He says to God Almighty, Your eyes are so holy, they cannot even look upon sin. And just as we read in Second Corinthians chapter 5, He who knew no sin, Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus assumed all the responsibility for your sins and mine, and that made it impossible for the Father to accompany Him to the cross. He turned away because, again, of God's holiness, and yet the eternal Son of God hung on the cross for the first time, without communion with the Father. Absence of communion with the Father. A second reason Jesus was in agony. That is the full weight of human sin. The sin of God's children fell upon him. You know, the Bible makes it clear in Leviticus chapter 16, amongst all the other sacrifices that had to be offered under the Old Covenant, 
on the Day of Atonement, there were many sacrificed bulls, and there were two goats in particular in Leviticus 16 that would be sacrificed. One would be sacrificed on behalf of the Lord as an atonement for sin. The other lamb would be, let's put it this way, the priest would put his hands on the, the lamb's head and pray, confessing the sins of the people. This was the scapegoat. The scapegoat would take all the sins of the people away. And this particular lamb was not sacrificed. It was simply sent out into the wilderness to die. And so you see, the Old Testament has this beautiful picture of what propitiation for sin is all about. Sin costs. It has to be atoned for. The Lord doesn't just sweep it under the rug. And all these Old Testament sacrifices over and over again were looking forward to the one and only sacrifice that could fully and finally make propitiation for the sins of the people. That is, make full atonement and also absorb the wrath. Absorb the wrath. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Well, here's the Lord Jesus looking to bear the full weight of all the sins of all of God's children for all time. No wonder there was a sense of agony. Think about that. Jesus is in the garden praying, and he knows that he's going to lose communion with the Father, but on top of that, he feels the gravity of his sin, of the sins of others placed upon his sinless life. I thought about that this past week. Every filthy thing I've ever said. All the secret sins I've done. All the evil thoughts I've entertained. All the times I failed to do the right thing. All the times I knew I needed to act but didn't. All the obvious sins others know about. And all the secret sins only I and God know about. All of them. And not just in the present or in the past, but in the future. The Lord Jesus, for all the elect children of all time, was going to the cross to absorb the sin and make atonement for all of your sins, period. That's what the gospel is. Listen to the words of Bishop J.C. Ryle. Quote, it was the sense of the world's guilt, pressing him down, which made even the eternal Son of God sweat like great drops of blood and called from him strong crying and tears as it says in Hebrews 5, 7. The cause of Christ's agony was human sin. So Jesus would lose communion with the Father, something he had never known, and he would bear the full weight of all the sin of God's children, all of them for all time third reason of agony, the torments of God's wrath and fury against sin. It was bad enough to have and absorb everyone else's sin. The sense of guilt. You know how it is when you sin, when you do that which is wrong? There is a sense inside of the believer that becomes grouchy and grumpy and upset 
You want to hide. You snap at people because you know you're guilty. And the Lord Jesus took all of this upon himself. But it didn't stop there. No, he took the full weight of God's wrath against those sins. There's a reason why we say in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus descended into hell. There are many who don't like this statement. It's not very tidy. But you see, for Jesus to make full atonement for our sins, he had to endure the punishment. And so whether he literally went to hell or not isn't the point. The point is, he absorbed all the hell that was meant for you and me. That is, he made full payment. Nothing to be done was left undone. And so Jesus faced the full wrath and fury of the Father in our place. That's why we read Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the sin, the iniquity of us all, to fall on Jesus. There have been many who have died in the name of Jesus, great martyrs who went to death without worry, who went to death in peace. Some have said, why is Jesus kneeling, praying, crying, sweating, because this death was unlike any other death in human history. This death was unlike any other death in Christian history. And ladies and gentlemen, the worst part of this death was not the cross. It was what was going on behind the scenes. The spiritual payment that was being made. And we must be aware of the modern notion of Jesus' life and death as nothing more than a great example of self-sacrifice. I don't know how many people I hear say that. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Oh, he's the ultimate example. He's a great ethical teacher. He was a faith healer. He went around doing good. And he's nothing more than an example like any other world religious leader. No, to put Jesus in that company is to disgrace him. The Lord Jesus is not like any other world religious leader. He is the eternal Son of God. And when he died, so much more was going on besides setting an example. At Easter time, or prior to Easter for Holy Week, we consider the suffering and the death of our Lord Jesus. Leading up to Easter when we celebrate the resurrection. But every time we come to this table, the Lord's table, we are reminded of the upper room and that first Lord's Supper, where Jesus declared, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The Lord Jesus suffered agony and an agonizing death because of separation from the Father, the full weight of our sin, and the torments of God's wrath unleashed without filter and without hindrance in his life. He did all that for you and me. You say, John, how do I know if I'm one of the elect of God? People ask that all the time. How do you know? Does this mean anything to you? When you think about a worldview with an almighty God, 
who loved sinners so much that he sent his own son to die on a cross so that he might make atonement for sins. That's why John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. How do you know if you're a child of God, this means something to you? It's not a fairy tale. It's not a self-help guide. It's much deeper than that. It means something to me. It is truth. And I embrace it with my entire life. And I want to give my life over to Jesus Christ, who is alive, that which we celebrate at Easter. Because after his death and burial in a grave, he gloriously rose from the dead in order to be the eternal, risen Son of God for all of eternity. And to welcome those who place their faith and trust in his finished work alone. Are you a child of God today? If not, let Holy Week be the time where you say, it is true, and it's true in my life. And I want the Lord Jesus to come into my heart and take my sin away, forgive me, and restore me to a right relationship with the Father. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we approach this portion of Scripture, we think about Moses standing on holy ground. We consider all that the Lord Jesus went through for us. And Father, you did it all because you love sinners and you welcome them to your bosom. You give them forgiveness. Lord, I pray that every one of us would be pierced in the heart by your Holy Spirit as we consider these words. Some brought into everlasting life for the first time. And the rest of us, Lord, that you would encourage us that we not lose heart as we continue to follow you. Lord, bless us to that end now as we approach your table. And give us grace as we partake. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.